This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Saw the mayhem yesterday at the B.C. legislature with protesters surrounding the building. Meanwhile, overnight, we saw a blockade in Vancouver by pipeline opponents. More blockades to come probably in the days ahead. If you take a look on Facebook, uh, there's a group on there planning another shutdown of the B.C. legislature in the days ahead. So, you know, probably maybe just getting started here with these uh, blockades and protests here over this project. Let's talk about the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline now. And I got both sides of it for you. We got our panel assembled on the line. I got Peter McCartney. He's a, cl- a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. He's opposed to the Coastal Gas Link Project. Peter, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Also on the line is Stuart Muir. He's the executive director of Resource Works, and he supports the pipeline. Stuart, welcome back. I'm Mike. Hi, Peter. Thank you, guys, both of you, for doing this. Peter, let me go to you first. When you saw the protests yesterday at the B.C. legislature, as a guy who opposes the pipeline, I mean, do you condone these type of tactics surrounding the legislature? Do you think that's a smart thing to do? I do, you know, and I think that there were four out of six stories on the front page of the Golden Mill this morning about this pipeline. So yeah. uh, I think the protests are having a huge effect. And, um, you know, we had lots of lots of friends on the ground there in Victoria. So it was an inspiring day. Don't you think they, I don't know, I, I think maybe they just do do themselves more harm than good. I mean, all you're doing is angering people, aren't they? You know, I think there hasn't been a social movement ever who has achieved real change without disrupting the lives of people you know it's unfortunate um but you know when we protest in front of ferry terminals they say well why aren't you targeting the legislature when we target the legislature they say oh well you know now you're interrupting uh mla's business and we see this again and again and uh in in years to come people will realize that you know this was a really crucial and important fight Okay, well, certainly the blockades have, have put the project in the in the public eye and a lot of media coverage of it. Stuart, what do you think? Yeah, well, we'll see what the public thinks. Um, I mean, the amount of inconvenience, the lack of respect for individuals and the desire to do physical harm to people, um, I don't know how that goes over with the average person who's drudging away uh, their job, paying their taxes, uh, getting to work, getting kids to school, and then there's someone on the bridge that can't go through that. Uh, why to stop a project that is providing a cleaner form of energy to part of the world that almost desperately needs to lower their greenhouse gas emissions over in Asia. They, they want this. They want it done safely. They think Canada is a more desirable and get it from Qatar and Russia. They'd like to do it with a country that has, last time I checked, the rule of law still in place, uh, knock on wood. Um, and, and so uh, there seems to be this idea, what is it, uh, we need to get to some perfect state and there's no acceptable pathway of you know doing the best we can do with the things yeah. available to us so i guess it's idealism and uh, you know i remember uh, going on a protest in my university the days i can i can i can understand the impulse but in this case you know it's uh it's really a climate protest that is actually an anti-climate protest it's a it's a, a protest about indigenous issues that's actually against the welfare of indigenous people so the whole thing is like topsy-turvy it's like mike it's like alice in wonderland here everything is the, the, through the looking glass, okay, Peter, and it's all Peter, down. Peter, what do you say to that? 
I mean, it's amazing to watch the spin that, you know, pro-industry PR people put on the, on this. It is true that when gas burns, it has less of a carbon uh, pollution creation than coal. But by the time you frack for the stuff in northeast BC, um, put it through leaky infrastructure to a liquefaction plant where they have to burn it for power to cool the gas down to negative 162 degrees and then ship it across the ocean, you know, th- any benefit that you'd see is, is lost in that conversation. So um, even if that was the case, we could convert every single coal power plant in the world to gas, and we would still be, uh, the electricity sector would still be emitting five times more than we can have for a safe climate. We would still be driving the majority of species on Earth to extinction and uh, putting hundreds of millions of people into poverty. Um, so, you know, the idea that this uh, fossil fuel that they're trying to export is somehow going to be good for the climate is just, uh, it's absurd. And, and it's a, you know, a communications point more than anything that started with the Christie yeah. Clark government and uh, hasn't yeah. been able to die. Okay, but I mean, if you don't export them the natural gas, aren't they just going to keep burning coal? Isn't that worse? It's not worse. That's what we're saying is when you take the life cycle emissions, so when it's all said and done, the gas here in Canada and uh, what it takes to get it over to Asian markets, you know, it's, it's marginal at best, depending how you look at it, and worse under some uh, circumstances. You know, we look at the studies you're citing there, Peter, and I'm, I'm afraid they're out of date. It's a hodgepodge of misinformation that you're peddling. No one believes it. You know, you think these nations across the Pacific are just a bunch of idiots who can't do the math, who don't take seriously their uh, signatures on the Paris Accord on Climate, that they're just a bunch of idiots? They're not. They have very carefully done this. They've sourced the best gas in the world. They're doing it in the most responsible way they can. And there's just they're getting no respect or even acknowledgement. And we have this sort of, of, of uh, you know, factory of, of spy mis- of, of of spin and misinformation right. coming from you where where the literature you're citing is from oklahoma it's dated it has just no relevance to the bc okay, peter, situation peter, whatsoever you, peter what do you say to that the literature we're citing is from british columbia and it's very conservative in the amount of methane that has been leaking into the atmosphere as far as countries in asia of course they want to lower their carbon first but and there's no uh, no, no doubt that burning gas instead of coal would, but it drives our carbon footprint up to discount for it. And so I don't see how these LNG companies, you know, we mentioned the Paris Agreement. They're trying to get credit for reducing emissions somewhere else um, because we're cr- uh, increasing emissions to do it here. Um, you know, that even the Minister of the Environment, you know, anyone who's really taken a credible look at this knows that those numbers don't add up. What's the point of having the clean BC? If I might just, what's the point of having the clean BC plan? Industry in BC has bought into it. The government in Victoria worked with industry and the environmental groups to come up with goals. Uh, Everyone signed off on it. Uh, Peter, maybe not your group, but other responsible groups that are recognized in the environmental space stood on the stage with the minister, with industry, and said, "We've agreed to this." That was two years ago. Um, I personally thought some things were a little far, but hey. they, they, they have a pact. So why aren't we respecting that, recognizing that the work has been done? The methane escape is a real issue. That's been resolved. Yeah. And Peter, there's, there's so much progress. There has, not been, there is, there has not been resolved. Um, there yeah. is an LNG-sized hole in the Clean BC plan, and there's lots of good stuff in that plan. But while we're all working to reduce emissions here in Vancouver, uh, the liquefied natural gas industry wants to increase emissions. The Clean BC plan only takes into account the first half of LNG Canada. Uh, and there's no mechanism for the government to try and okay. um, prevent the next half from being built, which would absolutely sink our provincial climate targets. This, like, hey, it's cut and dry here hey, that Peter. we cannot build this brand new fossil fuel industry at a time we're trying to reduce emissions. 
Hey, Peter, let me ask you this real quickly, and then we'll take a break and, and we'll take some phone calls as well. But when we take a look at the sort of the indigenous aspect of this project and the indigenous opposition from the hereditary chiefs of this Wet'suwet'en First Nation, when you take a look at how many First Nations are actually supporting this project, all 20 of them through their elected band councils along this pipeline corridor, and then you take a, a deeper dive into the economic spinoff that it's being created for First Nations, many of them impoverished, many of them living in remote communities that have seen other other oppor- business opportunities dry up and go away. It just seems to me this is like a lifeline for a lot of these communities that are getting jobs, work, and investment and income out of this project. What do you say to them? I mean, what do you say to these First Nations who are looking at this project as kind of a beacon of hope, and you're standing up there and saying, telling them to shut it down? Well, you know, I think the thing about human rights is that they apply whether or not uh, a community's decision is popular. Um, there are certainly First Nations who support this project across northern BC, uh, but the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary leadership, which has rights uh, that have existed for millennia and been recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada, has said no. And so, you know, for, for other communities, and, you know, it's uh, they're looking at this as, um, as something that could bring economic prosperity, uh, but the Wet'suwet'en so, have clearly said no, and and the, well, you've got, you know, you've a lot got of the five... money that is coming through these benefit agreements yeah. is actually coming from the provincial government, and we should be funding uh, infrastructure projects in First Nations communities. But you know, we shouldn't make that contingent on their support. Yeah, but the provincial got, government's agenda. But you got five hereditary chiefs are saying no to the project, and then you've got twenty elected band councils from First Nations who represent thirteen thousand Indigenous people. So how come you have five hereditary chiefs overruling? Uh, 13,000 Indigenous people who are looking at this project as, as a way out of poverty. Because that's how human rights work, and the B.C. Human Rights Commissioner was very clear on this. You, you cannot... Um, it, this oh, isn't geez. majority rule. It's, it's yeah. five, these yeah. five hereditary you know, chiefs have rights rule. that have been recognized wow. by the Supreme Court, and, and you need to get everybody on side. That's how consent works. Okay. And, um, and you cannot just bulldoze through a community when uh, when they clearly have said no okay. to this project. Scott in Maple Ridge, hi. Yeah, number one, we're always going to have a higher carbon footprint in Canada. We have a winter and we're in the northern hemisphere. Number two, the hereditary chiefs are kings. Queen Elizabeth is a hereditary chief. The age of kings and monarchy wielding real power is over. We're now democratic in the Western Hemisphere and Western society. So it's really, it's really uh, convenient for you guys to latch on to these kings because they agree with you. Peter, Peter McCartney, what do you, Peter, what do you say to that? Well, you know, I, I certainly don't think it's for anyone on this call to decide who represents the Wet'suwet'en people. They have to do that themselves. But that has been prevented by the imposition of the Indian Act for 150 years in this country. And, and you know, they need that space to be able to rebuild um, and decide a, a governance structure that works for the members of the community. Um, there's a governance system that has existed for thousands of years uh, that currently is making decisions and, and has authority. And, um, you know, but that space can't be possible while they're currently having a, a pipeline ramp through their territory which is creating all sorts of division. Stuart, what do you say to that? 
Yeah, it's a pretty opportunistic use, and I think abuse of the indigenous people I've been talking to here in the Bulkley Valley. I'm, I'm in Smithers today. The the hardship, the hurt, the people being literally burned out of their homes, threatened with violence. Uh, they call it lateral violence when people around you, people you know, are hurting each other. Uh, that's what's happening. I was looking at the criminal court docket in, in Smithers. I was down there, and the number of individuals on assault charges from Morristown, the, the Witsit community, where so many of the Wet'suwet'en live, um, it's it's heartbreaking. And I was interviewing a, a, a person today who, whose family has been subject to threats and, and violence. Uh, who's been, Why? His own family has been part. Why have they been threatened? Their, oh, because they think that having uh, jobs in their community, having uh, a future uh, potential for their children and grandchildren to be able to stay in the community, to keep the language and culture alive, which is so, so important in this 10,000-year-old culture here, and and they're being stopped by a an artfully manipulated and Peter's group is part of this. They're they're I mean it's right out of uh, uh, you know it's it's a bizarre situation that's been created here, um, exploiting the real issues. I mean there are real issues here. I'm not saying otherwise. I agree okay. with Peter on that. Um, in order to create the appearance of indigenous uh, resistance or or, uh, you know, opposition to something. Sure, there's, people have a whole spectrum of different views in broad Canadian society and in any First Nation. That's life. Uh, but to characterize and seize on to uh, some of these uh, often contentious uh, legal issues, jurisprudence issues, and claim, make these claims, set up this stage show of, of uh, these fantastic d- displays and, and uh, woe is us and the um, the, the spectacle with the RCMP on a forestry road, that's all made for the modern media age. It's all a manufactured uh, product, okay. which is meant to sway public opinion. I know, Peter, I know you're probably dying to respond to that. Let me just squeeze another call in here. Tim in Surrey, hi. Oh, hey, Mike. Interesting conversation. Very quickly, everybody keeps talking about the law and the order, rule of law. So if that is the case and people don't like civil disobedience and whatever, understandably, because it's inconvenience, does the 1997 court case decision that included the hereditary chiefs, is this what everybody is waiting for, for the appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada to see whether that 97 decision has any bearing on this particular route? And I understand all the hereditary chiefs are meeting today. Thanks, guys. Peter McCartney, can you comment on that? Uh, I can. I I first just want to respond to the idea that somehow this is the environmental movement manipulating things. You know, if you if you think this is environmental groups that are going in and, and and. controlling this yeah, uh, you don't understand the first thing about this we are we are taking mm-hmm. our leads from the people on the ground in what you went there Stuart, Stuart, let him let him Stuart, Stuart, hang okay. on Stuart. let him let him finish go ahead peter we, the unistoten camp has been there for a decade they were opposing oil and gas program uh, pipelines before many environmental groups got on side with that fight um this has been led by them from the start and they're very careful to uh to make sure that their authority is respected. And, and we've done a ton of work uh, to build relationships to and build trust to be able yes. to work yes, with them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, across the country, Indigenous communities are coming out here as, as if we're controlling that somehow. Is it, um, in, according to the Delgamuk decision, um, absolutely applies in this case. And what the yeah. Delgamuk decision said was that the provincial and federal governments needed to go back and figure this out. This should have been solved 20 years ago. We should never have been having this fight because the rights and title that hereditary governance systems have 
we're recognizing that decision, yeah. and that okay. never did work. It's Bill Forty One, okay. and I'm okay. Sorry, sorry, Stuart. I got working towards that good outcome. Gentlemen, I gotta I gotta step in there. The time flies by. I would love to have you both back because we there's a ton of calls we didn't get to. I want to thank you both for having a good, vigorous, respectful conversation. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, Stuart Muir from Resource Work.